This is Retrospective Facilitation, a podcast for facilitators that want to make their retrospectives even more effective. Listen to industry experts, authors, and executives that advocate powerful retros, share their stories and insights on how to reflect, adjust, and become more effective. To receive updates on the latest episodes, subscribe to our newsletter at thisisretrospectivefacilitation.com and win a chance to ask questions to our guests. Hey, welcome back. First of all, sorry about the audio in the last two episodes. It was recorded on Zoom and my post-processing was done with a low-quality microphone. Hopefully, this one will be a little bit better. In this episode, I interview Gide Klickard. She is a facilitator that I met at an open space conference. She shared my same passion for good retrospective facilitation. Have you ever found audience or teams that think that retrospectives are boring and useless? That's actually a blog post that Gide wrote a while back and the focus of this episode. How can we prevent teams and individuals from thinking uh, retrospectives are boring and useless? Enjoy the rest of the show. So, um, we have um, Gide on the show today. Gide, would you like to introduce yourself to the listeners? So, hi, I'm Gide Klitgård. I'm an agile coach from, I will say, from Europe. I'm Danish, but living in Sweden at the moment. Um, and I work with more the softer sides of agile coaching, meaning collaboration, psychological safety, and in general, how to get people to feel better at work. Nice. So Gide and I met at a, uh, a gathering in Portland, Oregon. Was it in October? Yeah. Of last year? That's where I found out that uh, you love Legos. <laughs> Lego. I know you're going to say that. Um, yeah. Um, so do you want to tell us uh, a little bit of the work you're currently doing and what makes you passionate about it? So the work that I'm doing right now is for Swedish public television. Uh, I'm working with some of the IT teams. And what I find really interesting with them right now is that um, it's the first time I work with people in mobs, so doing mob programming, uh, which creates different challenges than when people work more on their own. Um, it's how to actually get people to be in the mob and feel comfortable in the mob. Uh, for instance, one of the things that is interesting is how do introvert people feel when they have to sit in a mob all day? Um, and how do you collaborate if you are not used to looking at code, for instance, when most of the things are happening in, in coding? Um, but nice. in general, the whole thing about you know getting people to understand each other and respect each other and um, collaborate and figure out what is my best way of working. That's what um, I love about working with people. Nice. Um, how did you get interested in um, facilitation and uh, retrospective facilitation? Well, actually, it started out when I was a scrum master, um, where it's kind of like, oh, the scrum master rule says that I have to facilitate retrospectives. So I did. Um, so in the beginning, it was more like, uh, oh, that is something I should do. Um, and then I was lucky enough to be a student help in uh, a training by Daniel Larson. Um, who wrote the book about Agile Retrospectives together with Esther Derby. Um, 
she was doing a training on retrospectives and I was helping out at that conference. So I started learning a little bit about how easy and how difficult it is to facilitate a retrospective. Uh, how you with fairly simple tools can make a good retrospective, but also how much it requires, um, how much attention it requires from the person running the retrospective. So that's how I started out. And in 2012, um, I met a whole bunch of other people on a retrospective gathering, uh, which is a full week where we do nothing but talk about retrospectives. And that was mind-blowing that there is so much to learn in it in such a tool that at first look looks really really simple uh, but there are so many aspects of it that you can keep learning nice yeah. and um, you wrote a blog post uh, what was the title of the blog post is uh, uh, retrospectives retrospectives are... suck uh, retrospectives are boring and sucks or do they um because one of the things I find in most companies uh, that I've been to is people complaining about retrospectives. Why do we need to have this meeting? It's boring. Why can't we just work instead? Um, and um, I wrote this uh, blog post originally in 2014 when I was working at Lego without S. Um, and... Okay. <laughs> um, one of my friends asked me to do a guest blog post. So I wrote a blog post about this and about how by using um, simple things like preparing a bit, using a good structure and having action points can change retrospectives in from being boring and useless and into something that can provide value for you. Because if you have a meeting that doesn't provide value, then of course you shouldn't do it. Um now, I'm, when I come into more mature companies, I see the other aspect of it, that people go like, oh, we are already good enough. So our retrospectives become really boring because uh, everything works fine. So in those cases, I need to challenge people into making experiments because, yes, things are working fine now, but if we don't look into things and try and do experiments, how are we going to know if we can be better? Because the work that we do is mostly complex, which means that we cannot kind of foresee the future because people are people and software is software, which means that the results that we expect might not be what we get. So we need to keep doing um, experiments. But my blog post is mostly about how do you how do you run a basic retrospective? How do you put up a structure? It's about um, the purpose of it as well, which is about learning. It's not about fault finding. Um, it's not about blaming, it's not about complaining, it is about going in and looking at what happened and how can we improve. Nice. I love what you said about it's complex work and uh, I want to come back to the, to the blog post, but first I want to like, kind of like uh, maybe elaborate on that a little bit. So, so there's uh, some teams like, oh, we're good enough. Um, but I love what you said about uh, if we're not if we're not doing it if we're not like uh, looking at stuff because we work in because it's complex work. Um, can you elaborate on that, that a little bit more? Yeah. So I mean, we're all humans, which means that we're all different and we all react differently. And sometimes we don't even know how we're going to react in situations. And even if something works for us today, it might not work, or it might just be okay for us in six months. 
um, we will grow as humans, hopefully. We will learn more about the things we're working on, and especially if you're in the same team or working on the same product. You will learn more about that. If you have been, for instance, more programming for six months, you will have learned different things about how to collaborate. Maybe all of a sudden you need to figure out how do we actually learn enough about our own craft? Um, there's always things we can learn, and we don't know how we're going to react to these things before we start doing them. So if we don't do these experiments, we will, we might miss out on things that could help us become even better. And by challenging ourselves and by learning new things all the time, um, we help not only ourselves but also our brains because our brain also needs to be challenged. So part of that is also to keep us you know, on the toes. Uh, so it doesn't become this very comfortable but very apathic way of working because we know everything. Nice. Love it. Um, once I was um, interviewing for a job and this person told me, when I asked him, so do you have retrospectives? And, oh, yeah, we run retrospectives when we need it. <laughs> to which is like, if you run retrospectives when you need it, it's too late if it's not if you're not doing it at regular cadence um, yeah and then that's also what i find i know for instance that in the beginning of scrum the idea was not to have retrospectives the idea was you would take a meeting once in a while when you needed it and that you would improve um every day so as soon as you saw something that could be improved you would do it but my experience is that just doesn't happen if we don't allocate time for it, if we don't allocate time to take that step back and look at it, it rarely happens. I've seen one or two teams where they actually succeeded in saying, oh, you know what, there's some stuff we need to talk about, let's take a retrospective. But for the most part, what I see is that people are kind of like, yeah, we improve all the time, and then they might improve all the time, but it will also be the smaller things um, because they will improve they're here and now so when it comes to bigger discussions or bigger things that they might need to change they don't take the time and take the step back so they can get the overview of it mm -hmm. um, and another right. thing that I think is a problem is that almost all the retrospectives I see are iteration retrospectives sprint or whatever you call your iteration so you look back at the last two to four weeks what went well what didn't go well okay let's do something about it uh, whereas sometimes it might be beneficial to have a theme of how is our teamwork doing, uh, maybe have a retrospective together with another team and see how is our collaboration, or uh, if it's possible to invite the client in, for instance, and figure out how is our collaboration. Um, looking at what happened the last six months, having a focus on a product. So having different aspects of that, um, I think is very helpful. So it doesn't just become this daily routine where all we do is sharpen our pencil when actually we should go out and buy new pens yeah love it um i would pop a bottle of champagne if i had it uh totally agree <laughs> i think um who would you say call those themed retrospectives well it could be anyone uh, I often find that if it's a theme retrospective that requires a lot of contemplation, it's really good to have an external facilitator. And it doesn't have to be external to the organization, but external to the people in the retrospective. If it's a team, it can be someone from a different team or 
someone from a different part of the organization. Because when you do a theme retrospective, you might need sometimes to do a little bit more preparation. Uh, if there's a specific topic you need to talk about, maybe you need to do some research before you go into the retrospective. Maybe you need to bring some artifacts. Um, the basic structure that I would do would always be the same, um, but there might be different things you need to do. Um, there might be different timing you need to do. Um, most teams I see have retrospectives of an hour, and that's okay. I prefer one and a half hour, even if it's uh, just an iteration uh, retrospective. But if you look back at longer time, or if you want to go deeper into stuff like uh, how does our teamwork work or or other aspects, I think it's good to take a little bit more time. And I think that the person who should call for that should be the people in the t- in the retrospective. So if it's a team, the team should decide, let's do this, and then have somebody else facilitate it if possible. Because the problem with, with facilitating something with your own team is that you kind of need to have focus in two places. You need to help people um, by facilitating... Um, which kind of originates from making things easy. Uh, like the French word is facile, make things easy for people, which means you look at people, you see, oh, there's somebody who's just about to say something but might not feel like it. You give them tools so that they can communicate better. And if you have to do that at the same time as putting in your opinion, you keep uh, sw- swapping tasks in your head, which means that you're probably not going to be totally focused on any of them. And it can work, and it works for most teams with their iterations, retrospectives. But especially, I think, if you dive deeper in, it's really good to have an external facilitator. And even if you don't, it's just nice that you can actually all just be in the meeting and be there, not having to take care of timing or looking at if everyone is doing okay. You can just talk about the things, you can think about the things, and you can act as a group. Nice, love it. Um, Norman Kurz, uh, the the creator of the Project Retrospectives book, he um, he asked, uh, I don't know if it's Esther or Diana, uh, Esther W or Diana uh, Larson, to help him. Again, he created the Project Retrospective yeah. book, he, and he needed help because he couldn't facilitate his own retrospective. So this is the guy that, again, came up with that, uh, with that concept. So um, love the idea. I yeah, totally agree that it can work, especially in uh, shorter iteration retrospectives. Um, love the idea of a, of a facilitator guild that I've heard from one of the other guests on the show where a company has a guild of facilitators that can exchange on, uh, on different teams so that you have someone external. Yeah, and I think that's a really good idea. And actually, I find it very interesting that so many people don't know about Norm Kurth because he kind of created the basis of this. The things that he writes about is how we used to do it, where we might have a three-day retrospective after a project. Now that we do agile retrospectives, we do it more often. But a lot of the principles that he said are still the principles that I think we should use. Stuff like it's not about blaming, it's about fault-finding. It's not about fault-finding, it's about learning. Uh, so the fact that we actually have a retrospective is because we want to learn. We don't want to figure out whose fault it is. We want to figure out what happened and how can we make this better? How can we learn? Um, he has a prime directive um, about 
We truly believe. So the, the gist of it is we truly believe that everyone did the best they could. And that is actually something that I very often introduce when I start a retrospective. Um, but I started using it, uh, I think it was after 2012 when I had a discussion with Esther Derby about it. I actually started using the prime directive outside retrospectives as well. Because it's a really good way of thinking about things when you collaborate. The fact that you you believe, and in the beginning it would be hard to believe it, but at least try to believe that everyone did the best they could with the skills they had, with the situation at hand. Maybe they didn't have enough information. Maybe they didn't. Um, they were not able to do uh, the thing that they were supposed to do. There's a lot of things that, I mean, but everyone does the best they can. Uh, so one of the culture hacking that I sometimes do when I'm in organizations is actually to print it out and put it into the toilets. Uh, because at least before the phone, that's where people would sit and read. They would read what was on the door. I know Google uses it for bug finding, for instance. They put code up on the door. Uh, I put up prime directive so that people can be reminded that it's always good to believe that other people did the best that they could. And I think that's the basis for a retrospective is that no matter how bad it is, the stuff that we need to talk about, it is the best that people could do at that point. Because people don't go into work and go like, you know what, today I'm going to fuck up the build. That's not what they do. They go in to do their best. And sometimes that means we make mistakes because we are humans. I call it a little bit the modern Turing test. Because if you don't make mistakes, you're not human. And we all make mistakes. And and that is not the point of the retrospective. It's not to figure out, oh, you made a mistake. It is to figure out what happened and how can we prevent this from happening again. Or the other side of it, which is also another part that people forget, is what was the amazing thing that happened that we need to continue? What was the experiment that we did that worked really, really well in this iteration or in this setting? Way too often, people tend to focus on, oh, these things went wrong, we need to fix them. Uh, where maybe sometimes just go in and look at what things worked really, really well. Oh, we tried out this experiment three times in this situation, and that actually resulted in us collaborating more. Maybe we should do this more often. Maybe we should tell the other teams about it. Uh, maybe we should write a blog post about it, something to spread that knowledge to ensure that this is something we do. Um, the team that I'm working with now, uh, what they often do, they have a check-in in the morning and a check-in uh, before they go, or check out before they go home or before the first one goes home. And what they do is they add to this so that they remember it. Um, going like, add oh, this this, stuff. Sorry. This. Uh, you said add to this? Yeah so, kind oh. of, uh, yeah, so kind of adding to whatever you have, if it's a checklist, if it's a check-in, if it's check, yeah. That's because in front of my head, I now see their board where they have this checklist. That's what this is. So they have like a checklist on their board. These are the things that we ask in the morning. These are the things we ask before we go home. Um, and they then add to that if they figure out, oh, this is something that worked really well. And we actually um, we actually learned something from this. Um, so currently, one of the things they have is, did we have any insights today that we would like to share with someone outside the team? And then they write it up on their board so that they can share it the next day. Um, and it can be something that they share with their customers who are 
some of the journalists writing on the web page, or it can be with other teams working in the same uh, areas. But having that insight, or sometimes they even have, okay, we need to document this tomorrow because we actually learned something about the product we're working on. Love it. Nice. Yeah, celebrating the successes and also like the learnings really, I think is uh, is key. And um, think back to the, to the Prime Directive, um, it's, uh, it's challenging. And sometimes I've seen individuals just like, nodding their head and like yeah, yeah i believe it but they don't really um i think it's it's good even just to introduce it uh and to to have it printed out and uh, i like to highlight how it focuses on the context rather than on the, the blaming or on the on the situation yeah it's like everyone did the best job they could given what they knew at the time their skills and ability the situation available uh, the resources available. So what are those things? What were those things? Um, so it's a really powerful, powerful um, statement that, uh, yeah, I think it's uh, it's uh, it's great that, uh, that that is out there for us to, to just use. And, um, and I think have... that it takes time. I mean, it took me years to truly believe it. Um, in the beginning, when I was introduced to it, I was like, yeah, this is a nice idea. But uh, so it took me a long time before I truly believed it, which I do today. I believe that people do the best they can. Um, what what changed? What made you? Well, part of it was actually repeating for myself and kind of facilitating a lot of retrospectives with different teams where I introduced this. Um, printing it out many times and hanging it up at toilets and at coffee machines. Uh, looking at it and then... I started reframing the way I think about people. I try to understand other people. I still struggle with, with uh, people who are intolerant. That's something that can really upset me, where I really struggle with still believing it. But besides that, what I started doing was trying to become curious. So instead of thinking, oh, that's really stupid, uh, that what he did, I'm thinking, oh, that's really interesting. I wonder why he reacted this way. Um, also because the more I learn about people, the more I learn that a lot of what we do are like automatic reactions because very few of us actually take the time to learn how to make that division between the impulse that we have and how we, and what we do, because whatever we think and whatever we feel is okay. What we do or what we say might not be. But the only way you can divide the two is if you practice. If you learn how to put in that little moment of, of pause that creates that you can actually choose what you do. Make it a deliberate thing. So that, and learning about that and learning that a lot of people don't do that um, has made me more curious about I wonder what initial thing inside them made them react this way. I wonder what happened to them. Um... I mean, we talk, um, if you look at a dog, for instance, we know the example with Pavlov's dogs. When you when they rang the bell, the dogs would start drooling because they were used to food uh, when the clock went off. And you can see the same if you see a dog, for instance, um, that has been abandoned or has been hurt. They will duck as soon as they see humans. And we humans do the same things. Often you cannot see it on the outside, but we do it on the inside. And if we have been conditioned to do something, or conditioned to believe something is right, it takes a really huge effort to change that. 
So part of what I've been kind of like in doing is like being curious. What is it that helps people or that makes people act in a specific way? Because they do do the best they can. And one of the things I see in our industry, for instance, in the tech industry, is that so many people come, of course, from a tech background. It can be they studied computer science, engineering, mathematics, all of these things where we learn about things that have a result. We learn about, you know, underlining things. Um, there is a binary. There is a true and a false. And when it comes to humans, we don't learn anything. We don't learn how to give or receive feedback. Maybe if you're a manager, you learn how to do this. But we, we don't as individuals. We don't learn how to communicate. We don't learn how to collaborate. And basically, we just put to be people together in a team and go like, ta-da. And then all the so-called soft skills, which are really the hard skills, or one of my friends called them the hard interrelational skills, we don't learn those things. And that makes me kind of curious, like, how can I help this person maybe learn some of these things that would make the collaboration better? Because they are doing the best they can. If you've never learned how to give feedback, how are you supposed to frame it properly? How are you supposed to know that you don't blame the person, you blame what happened? That you talk about, oh, the system broke down, not, oh, you put some code in that made the system break down. That it's not about the person, but it's about what happened. It's not about who the person is, but it's about the action that they did. If we have not learned that, how are we supposed to do it? Um, And for me, that's also what the prime directive is about, is that not all people have these skills. And we can try to teach the people around us, but still there will be people who don't have these skills. And even when you have them, I mean, like I said before, we're all humans. We all fail, and there are things that trigger us. Um, Like one of my really big trigger points is when people say, oh, women in IT are not proper women because no women are logical. Uh, Which is actually something I've heard a few times. That really triggers me. Even if it's a joke, it triggers me. And I know that... I, I can go like, I know it's a joke, but it triggers me. Would you please stop that? And if they don't, I usually rip their head off. Not not literally, I'll just say. No bodies have ever been found. Throw Legos at them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, the, 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 again, uh, ever, all you said resonates a lot. I think the... I think it was Diana that we were having like one of those conversations on the show and she was like, just because we're human, we don't know how to communicate. Like people assume that because we're like adults, you can communicate effectively, but that's not, not always the case. Um, so how do we, do we foster that in, in, in retrospectives? I think um, the front directive is a good, uh, I think is a good way to kind of like start and set the stage. Do you have other uh, techniques that you use in your retrospectives to uh, to kind of like adjust those communication patterns? Well, I try to, uh, sometimes I will tell people about how to focus on, you know, actions and not on people. Um, but also the actions that um, that we come out with when we before we leave the retrospective, um, one of them could actually be we need to practice feedback. Which I think is a really bad action, actually, because it's not very concrete. So I would change that into: during the next iteration, we need to take an after, we will take an afternoon where we train giving each other feedback. Um, so actually, taking the time to do the actions, because 
Besides the fact that a lot of people don't have actions, a lot of people have actions that never get done. Uh, and for many reasons. One is that there's not enough time, which means we don't prioritize actually taking the time to do these things. Because there's never enough time to do all the things we want. But if we don't take the time to do the improvements that we already agreed on, we're never going to get better. Another part can be that um, it's something that the whole team needs to do. So we are all responsible for it. And sometimes when everyone is responsible for it, nobody does it. Um, so if it's something like, for instance, uh, what I have in many teams, we need to be better at being on time in meetings, um, which I then try to change into something more concrete, like at least five days out of the next 10, everyone needs to be there in the morning. And what I do there is I, I help them find an anchor person or a guardian who will be the one reminding people, remember, we agreed that we are going to be on time. Or remember um, that we agreed to pair program at least once a week and the week is almost over. So having a guardian and then also I put on deadlines or whatever we choose to call them. But I put on a date um, because otherwise it becomes this thing. If there's no date on it, we can always push it. We tend to push a lot of the things that are important but not urgent because we have all the urgent things. And by putting a date on it, there's a higher likelihood that we will actually do it. Plus, we need to remember to follow up in the next retrospective. So when I start the retrospective with um, the introduction and kind of opening it, part of that is looking at the action points from last time. Did we do these actions? If we did not, did it make sense not to do them? If it's something, a behavioral change that we want in the team, maybe do an evaluation of it. Is this how we want to keep acting? Or... Was it just an experiment that we did for two weeks and now we realize, you know what, this doesn't work. Um, so doing that follow-up in the next retrospective is really, really important so it doesn't become this thing that you just do and then it disappears. Um, because then it's, um, it's good intentions. Right. And I good intention that. doesn't take us very far. Yeah. I love that you like asked, like, did it make sense not to do it? versus like why was it not done so there might be like circumstances why action item were not were not done and that question is is really powerful um one of the things that that i often see is like action items that um the team doesn't have energy for yeah and they they somehow they kind of like cripple kind of like uh crop into the into the 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 action plan but um i think it's actually diana that have this activity um, I think it's IEIEC is like uh, how much impact, how much energy the team has, uh, how much effort we think this action would take. Yeah. And the C stands for commit. Who yeah. commits to, to can I carry this over? Similar to your anchor person, your guardian. Yeah. Um, so making sure that we have uh, something that the whole team is, or, or at least there's like energy behind. And if not, maybe we pick something else that we have energy for. Love it. Um, we're almost up with time. I feel that uh, it says 30 minutes, but I feel that we've been talking for like three minutes. <laughs> this, this will go on for like uh, for, for a whole lot longer. And we briefly just talked about the, the blog post, like our retrospective boring. Um, maybe like uh, quickly we can uh, uh, exchange a couple of notes on that. Uh, are they boring? When are they, when are they boring and, and they suck? 
Uh, I think they're boring and they suck when they don't have a purpose. When you don't get anything out of it, when it becomes a waste of time. Any meeting is boring if it's a waste of time and you feel it's not relevant what you're discussing in there. So first of all, uh, having a good structure where you um, ensure, okay, what are we talking about today? Then you look at data. Then you actually take the time to think. Um, and then you decide what to do and you create actions so that these things will happen. That is part of what can make a retrospective um, suck less. Um, make sure that you don't blame people, that it's not about finding fault, but it's about learning and about moving on. Um, and then try to put in the good things as well, so that you don't just focus on the bad things. But making it a constructive meeting um, and narrow down what you talk about. Because if you have like 20 things that are problems in your team and you try to discuss all 20 things, it's going to be useless because you can't fix 20 things at once. So try to focus on a few things and then maybe figure out why this happens instead of just saying, oh, our system broke down, we should do this. Kind of looking, okay, why did it break down? Is it hardware? Is it people? Is it our code? What is the place where we need to go in and figure out what's going on? So taking that time and making sure that it's relevant for everyone and that everyone feels involved, which, can, which sometimes can mean that some people need to know if you have questions, they need to know them the day before because some people need to really turn things around inside their head before they have an answer. I'm one of the people where things just come out of my mouth because I think while I speak. But a lot of people need to think inside their head before they speak. And if you don't give them the time to do that contemplation, you're going to miss out on those people's insights. You're just going to get the insights of the people who speak the most. And just because people speak the most doesn't mean that they're right. Uh, so making sure that the environment that you have in the retrospectives is also something that is good for all the people who are in there, all the people who are involved. If you have someone, for instance, who's sensitive to light, make sure that you dim the lights in the room. If you have someone who's sensitive to sound, figure out how can you find a room that's away from other people so that it's a quiet room. Uh, if somebody needs time to prepare, make sure that they get it. So figure out that so that it fits the people who are in the room. Love it. Uh, another one that I, I feel like calling out is the color blindness. I had like a team team member that was colorblind, and the post-it of different colors looked the same to him. Ah, uh, um, yeah. So that was uh, that was something that uh, was specific to that context. I tried an interesting uh, one where I had a guy without arms. Hmm. Um, so one of the developers didn't have arms. He would code with his feet. Uh, so I went to him the day before. I'm kind of like, I have to ask you, Sebastian, Do can you actually write on post-it notes? And he was like, sure, but my foot writing is really bad. Um, so he could write on post-it notes and he could put them up on the wall like everyone else. But I didn't want to put him in a situation where he could not contribute. Uh, because of, of his disability. Um, but he was really cool about it, and I was a little bit afraid of asking him because I didn't want to you know, call him out on it. But he was really cool with it, and he's like, so whenever I did exercises with him, I would just go check. 
is the stuff that you cannot do. Um, and he cannot play volleyball, for instance, um, but he's really good at karate and stuff like that. So we just catered for that and made sure that um, if it was something just for the team, there wouldn't be any balls, for instance, because he could not catch a small ball with his feet. So giving that space for someone in the room, and I think colorblindness is really cool because that's one of the things we often forget because it's not visible. It's pretty visible when people don't have arms, um, but colorblindness is not. Yeah, yeah. The sound as well. I sometimes play music, and um, I remember it was a group where, uh, yeah, it's not it's not for everyone. Yeah, awesome. Um, so I'm kind of like starting to to wrap up, and um, usually I have like um, some questions that I that I ask all the guests. Um, the first one is, um, what is a book that uh, you're reading or you just finished reading? <laughs> the awkward hug. Um, so I'm very much a hugger, and um, I enjoy hugging. Uh, and I think it's very important that a hug is something that is enjoyed by both people. So you have to be really careful who you hug. And for my birthday, I got a book about the awkward hug, which is like um, you know the mom hugging her teenage son in front of um, his friends and stuff like that. Or the ant that goes and kind of pulls your cheeks and go like, oh, you've grown so big, Huck. Um, so that's the book I just finished. So not very professional. No worries. It sounds fun. Um, the next one I have is, what is a one uh, retrospective activity that has worked well for you? And in which context was it? If you can have a brief anecdote. Uh, um, so one that worked really well was actually in a really geeky team I had where we used the sailboat except it wasn't the sailboat it was the Millennium Falcon uh, so we're kind of like what are the T-fighters um, who are in here uh, who is our Chewbacca for instance who's the one who comes in and helps us um, what is the Death Star how far is it from us and stuff like that um, and that worked really really well uh, because everyone could relate to this and they were kind of like, they had a consultant who just happened to actually have a big beard. And they were talking about, yeah, you really are Chewbacca because you kind of come in, you grunt a little bit and it really makes sense. And it's helpful for us to run our Millennium Falcon and it pulls us towards our goal, uh, which yeah. was the rebel base, of course. Um, so that worked really, really well. Um, but I've also had, you have to really be a little bit careful with using things like that because if there's one person in the room who doesn't know Star Wars, um, it becomes really awkward. Or is a Star Trek fan? Yeah. Well, Star Trek fans are also nice, most of them. I have a friend actually who's like, <laughs> I'm gonna, yeah, he, he was like not happy when he, he was telling me about Picard, the, the TV show, and I was yeah. like, I'm really more into Star Wars than Star Trek, and he was like, I'm not gonna talk to you anymore. I have a friend, Catherine Kirk. She took her last name from Star Trek. There you go. But I still love her. When I when I got uh, when I got my Australian citizenship, you can change your name, and I wanted to change my name to Bruce Wayne. <laughs> but yeah, that's for another that's for another story. Um, another question I I have in for the final kind of like finishing up is: What is your favorite food? Uh-huh. If you have to pick one item, steak flesk with basil sauce. What is it? <laughs> um, so basically, what it is, it's like fried. Pork, where you kind of um, but, uh, bread it, 
and then with potatoes and a parsley sauce. Uh, and my favorite is when my sister makes it. Um, yeah. Great. Um, cool. Um, is there anything that uh, we missed? Uh, uh, any project in the pipeline for you or anything else that you want to share before we close out? No, just do your retrospectives um, and do them well. And when I've been doing well, try to learn a little bit more about it. But if you can't, Learn if you don't have the time to learn more about it. At least follow the five steps that Diana and Esther described in their book, and that is also in my blog post. If you want to read it there, nice. And we'll put a link in there. Uh, how can our listeners find you? Um, well, you can find me on LinkedIn, or you can find me on Twitter. I am Native Wired on Twitter, and I tweet a lot, and I'm quite active on Twitter, so be warned. Um, but that's a good place to reach me and I am very happy to engage in conversations with people. Our guests share lots of insights and ideas. Which change are you going to try in your next retrospective? Tell us on Twitter with hashtag thisisretrospectivefacilitation or leave us a comment on thisisretrospectivefacilitation.com. If you'd like to get in contact with Gita, head to thisisretrospectivefacilitation.com slash e slash 18 to get her contact and the link to her blog post. Thank you for listening. This is Enrico Teotti. Till next time.